Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we discuss the progress of Myanmar's development and the ongoing clashes in Rakhine State with Ambassador Derek Mitchell. I think we have to see Myanmar for what it is, not what we hope it would be. Um, I think we have projected onto it a certain simplicity over the years, um, whether it's democracy and, and the junta or the lady in the junta or such such things. Uh, it is an extraordinarily complicated place. And as mentioned in this in your questions, there's a peace process, there's a problem of Rakhine and Rohingya, there's an economic underdevelopment problem. Um, but there's, I think they're trying to get on their feet. And I think we have every interest in helping them and not um, defining the country according to one or two issues. But at the same time, when it comes to um, something like what's happening in Rakhine State, we can't look away uh, and we have to help them find solutions uh, and not simply identify the problem. That was Derek Mitchell. We'll hear more from him shortly. As we've covered on this podcast previously, Myanmar, or Burma, faces an uncertain future following the November 2015 victory of the Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, in federal elections. An elected government replacing a quarter-century-old military junta was hailed as progress in this key Southeast Asian state, but the story is still complex. Barred by the military-authored constitution from serving as president, Suu Kyi has taken a position as state councillor and serves as the de facto head of government. There are no end of challenges facing the new government, but progress in this transitional democracy over the last 18 months have been sticky. Meanwhile, there is a parallel power structure in the country whereby the civilian NLD government does not control the military. Moreover, following the NLD's victory, militant Buddhist nationalism has been more prominent, complicating Myanmar's numerous internal ethnic tensions. In some areas, this complicated political picture has resulted in tragedy, like in Rakhine State in western Myanmar, where the Rohingya, a persecuted, disenfranchised Muslim ethnic minority, have seen a dire situation get even worse. Following a series of attacks by the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, a militant group formed to, quote, protect Rohingya's rights, clashes intensified with local militia and Myanmar military, or Tatmadaw, this summer. In late August and early September, the Tatmadaw began what they describe as, quote, unquote, clearance operations against the Rohingya. By the time of this recording, more than 400,000 Rohingya have fled their homes or refugee camps across the border to neighboring Bangladesh. The United Nations has declared that textbook ethnic cleansing is underway, with numerous villages burned to the ground. To dissect this situation, we turn to former U.S. Ambassador to Myanmar, Derek Mitchell, who served in the Obama administration as the first U.S. envoy to the country in 22 years. Ambassador Mitchell recently returned from a visit to Myanmar in late August. My colleague Jeff Bean caught up with Derek this week. Good day. I'm Jeffrey Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Our guest today is the former U.S. Ambassador to Myanmar and uh, former CSIS Southeast Asia Program Director, Derek Mitchell, uh, who is currently a senior advisor at USIP. Uh, Ambassador Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank you. Derek, you recently traveled to Myanmar in early September as part of a delegation uh, with USIP. I want to start with your big picture takeaways uh, based on the findings from your trip. Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD have been in office now for about 18 months. They faced monumental challenges coming into office. Are there signs that 
governance and economic development are improving under this administration in Myanmar? Well, first, I was there actually about a couple of weeks before that. I arrived back on the 28th of, of August. I was there about 10 days before, which was um, around the time the Annan Commission put out its report, as well as the recent uh, attacks occurred on the border of uh, Bangladesh and Rakhine State. Um, but, you know, on, on the issue of uh, governance in the economy, I think it's all a work in progress still. Um, this Aung San Suu Kyi's government uh, was an opposition government. They came in without much, uh, certainly not much experience and not much of a structure, governmental structure to work with. Um, and they're just now, I think, getting their feet under them after about a year and a half to work governmental processes, to make things, uh, make policies uh, actually move. And the economy as well, I think, has been neglected. Uh, but they're starting to talk in, um, uh, more seriously and put together the kind of processes to get the economy on track. Um, but it's going slowly, um, and uh, they're going to have to pick up the pace because they're only a few years away from their next election. Now, I want to turn to the issue that you mentioned that has been leading the news, the crisis for the Muslim Rohingya in western Myanmar. According to rights groups, nearly 400,000 Rohingya have fled Rakhine State to neighboring Bangladesh following clashes with local Rakhine militia and national military forces. Can you provide your outlook for the situation in Rakhine following the emergence of the Iraq and Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, and the Tatmadaw's subsequent response? Well, it's a, it's a tragic, uh, heartbreaking situation. I think the pictures that we all see speak for themselves. Um, we're not sure about the exact numbers. The estimates are as many as 400,000 people, many women and children and, and all, older people on the move. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a deep-seated problem um, in the country, something that I worked on a lot when I was ambassador and was tough to get traction on because of uh, the feeling of most of the people of, of, uh, of Myanmar that these uh, Rohingya are alien, they're illegal immigrants, and even a threat to the country. So, um, you know, the Tatmadaw's response has been, um, as usual, uh, overly harsh and uh, blunt and indiscriminate, um, to, to say the least, and certainly murderous, uh, probably in, in some respects. Um, they are fighting, though, a force of, uh, as you say, the ARSA, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, who did attack them and as well have been rather murderous to some Rohingya who don't fall behind them. So there's a lot of people, not just Rohingya, who are being displaced, um, and it's just creating more polarization in the country and a deeper divide that will be more difficult to patch up uh, in coming months and years. Overnight, we're recording on September 19th, Aung San Suu Kyi delivered a national address where she discussed the crisis in Rakhine State and the Rohingya refugees. However, she did not call out the military for their role in perpetrating ethnic cleansing. Aung San Suu Kyi has come in for significant international criticism, including from her fellow Nobel laureates, over her perceived silence and inaction on the question of the Rohingya. Is that criticism fair in your view? I think there's a legitimate critique to make, certainly before yesterday's speech, that um, she didn't give voice to the tragedy that was unfolding, the humanitarian tragedy, the human rights uh, tragedy that was, that was happening. Uh, and she may have been a bit too defensive because she felt that the international attention was too one-sided or was not as uh, insightful as it should be. And I think that's that critique of the international attention, I think, is also true. I think she was ineffective at her communications um, and her ability to express 
uh, concern in principle, which people expect from her. I do think that most of the criticism has been unfair, though, uh, in the sense that she cannot wave a wand and make this go away. As I mentioned, that a vast majority of the people of the country uh, look on the Rohingya as alien at best and um, terrorists at worst. And in fact, um, border police were attacked by this group acting on behalf of the Rohingya. Uh, I'm not saying that that's um, that it's right that people view the Rohingya this way. It's just that her political situation is such that she is caught and um, she can be subject to challenges about her uh, national security uh, credentials um, if she pushes back too hard on the military. So she's been rather careful having to balance an international constituency and a domestic constituency. And I think she has chosen to stay careful with the domestic constituency to maintain some kind of leverage, I hope, in, uh, in proceeding with a more principled approach to address the question. You mentioned the response of uh, international media and the international community. What role does the international community, the United Nations and interested parties, uh, what role do they have to play with the humanitarian crisis in Rakhine and uh, in Bangladesh as well along the border um, following the, the UNHCR's declaration that ethnic cleansing is in progress. These clashes are continuing. As you point out, this is a deep-seated uh, problem that has existed for a number of years. And do you think the recommendations of the uh, commission led by uh, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, which you referenced earlier, the Annan Commission, do you think those uh, are viable and, and how could those fit into a possible solution? Well, first on the humanitarian question, I mean, setting aside terminology like ethnic cleansing, which it very well uh, may be, um, you know, I, I don't know definitions and it certainly uh, I think things are called into question when there are 400,000 people on the move. Um, but, um, you know, on the humanitarian side, our number one job will be to try to get these people assistance, urgent um, assistance and care because they are vulnerable in Bangladesh right now. So our number one job really is to take care of the humanity that is suffering uh, grievously right now on that border. Um, secondly, is certainly to get access to Rakhine State because there's suffering going on in the shadows there and, and conflict and many people uh, that we're not seeing who may be uh, caught in the middle of things. We're not seeing thousands and thousands of men um, who are not crossing the border, what they're up to. So that has to stop that conflict so that we can start um, healing and, and reconciling as, as best we can. Um, you know, I think we have to continue to bear witness. We can't forget about this issue. It's easy sometimes to see things in headlines and then let it go, and then a new st uh, degraded status quo takes hold. So I think it's incumbent upon us to remember, keep our minds on what's on the suffering that's happening, and, and don't lose focus. Um, and then I think, as Aung San Suu Kyi said last night in her speech, uh, I think we should take up her offer to work closely with the government on uh, a plan, a strategic plan to deal with all the different components of a solution to this question, which which it has to do with refugees, it has to do with border security, it has to do with development, it has to do with issues of citizenship, um, it has to do with uh, a, a whole host of things like that. So um, we have a role to play in that, and I think we should be working together as an international community to help find solutions and not simply identify the problem or be personal about who's responsible for it. Uh, people should be held accountable, but I think we should be focusing on working with the government to help 
uh, implement the Anon Commission, which deals with all those different components I mentioned. The headlines, as you mentioned, it, it is easy to forget that there is a peace process underway in Myanmar, uh, one that has been championed by Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, as well as the previous government under Tansen. Uh, these negotiations uh, between Nebidaw and some of the uh, ethnic armed groups in Myanmar. Uh, who are the key parties in these current uh, talks, and, and what is the status of these negotiations from your perspective? Well, there's not just a few key parties. I mean, there, there's some major groups um, like the Karen and the Shan and the Kachin. Um, but there are what makes this complicated is there are 20 plus groups um, that the government has to make peace with or find a way uh, forward um, with. And, and that's just more complicated by many different m- many degrees than any other peace process you can find anywhere in the world. Um, so, you know, I think... Um, you know, the current status is that it's they've had a couple major conferences where people have um, had made public speeches and brought agreements on certain principles. But right now, it seems different groups are at different places in this process of political negotiation. It's starting to fragment, so you don't have all the ethnic groups on one side. You have some willing to move quicker than others, and there are some where some areas like in northern Shan State and Kachin State where. There is more fighting than there's been in the past 25 years. Um, so you, it's, it's a troubled process. It's a messy process. It's sort of what you would expect from Myanmar, uh, given its fractured nature and its divisive um, politics, that you're going to probably have some places that move forward and other places that, that fall back. Uh, and what you do hope is that um, uh, you, you have some stability in places, and, and over time people will just simply get exhausted from the fighting um, and uh, you know we'll see some people get back to their homes and start their lives but uh, it's not on track right now and um, I think most people are a bit discouraged that it's it hasn't moved as quickly as it should have in the first 18 months of an um, Aung San Suu Kyi administration. Derek great thank you so much. Okay thank you. As Myanmar and the world grapple with this complex crisis, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Derek Mitchell for taking the time to share his insights and takeaways from his recent visit to Myanmar. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemeling-Sari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and KajitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative for groundbreaking analysis in the maritime Asia. And check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on China's high-speed rail ambitions. Also be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on North Korean sanctions. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.